Diet Black Podcast is a podcast about true crime, punk rock and gothic music, TV shows and movies, pretty much anything creepy or weird that we decide to discuss. It may contain graphic content, vulgar language, and suggestive themes that may be triggering and or inappropriate for some listeners. Let's be honest, it's gonna contain vulgar language. Now all opinions are just that, they're opinions. We are not scholars, lawyers, or historians, and by no means do we claim to be experts. And the information that we obtain comes from the internet, and we have no proof that it's fact. So thank you, and enjoy the show. Welcome back. We are back. It is season two of Diet Black Podcast. We're calling it season two because, well, we've been gone for a while and we want to start fresh. So we're glad you stuck around with us. Thanks for coming back. Sorry it took us so long, but Liam over here, say hi. Hi. (laughs) I had the plague for a month and, I mean, we did some recording when it first started and then when Tam got sick, and it just wouldn't go away, and yeah. as you can tell, Tam's voice is still gone, but it was completely gone. For yeah, two so weeks. this is good for me. It's been about three weeks since I've had an actual voice. Yeah. So stick with me through this. I'm gonna try and keep hydrated and not give out. But um, the whole point is, we missed it. We want to do this, and we want to get back in the saddle. So. We are here today. Yeah, so we've decided to, you know, the disclaimer says what, kind of what we want to do, but, you know, we like the idea of doing, like, a true crime, like, ghosty podcast, but we want it to be more just creepy, weird things, and things that we like, some stuff pop culture, we'll talk about some movies, we're going to kind of blend a couple of different things in, and... Hopefully you guys like it. If there's something that you'd like us to talk about, like a movie, we're planning on having a guest come in. We probably will do like a horror movie uh, series, and we've got some friends that want to come in, so we're hoping to incorporate that this season. And, you know, we decided that looking back on our shows, a lot of the stuff that gets really positive feedback is just that, not necessarily all true crime not necessarily all paranormal, but a mix of the two, and we really like the history aspect. And so we're going to do a lot of the stuff that just entertains us and we find weird and spooky and just out of the norm and bring you those things because I think that's stuff we're all curious about. So be it stories about our hometowns, be it stories about... Um, places and things that nobody's really talking about. Yeah. Like, we just want to bring in more aspects of the genre. And especially because, you know, with true crime, a lot of people are doing that. And they're all kind of focusing on the same thing. And that's great. It's great to get different takes on the same subject. But we don't want to overdo things. We don't want to do things that have been tread on so yeah like a lot of our favorite podcasts are true crime but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's what we have to talk about exactly so there will be aspects of true oh, crime God, yeah we're always going to talk about people getting murdered because that's what we do it's yeah it's you know stuff we're curious about but we're trying to make it more oddities and curiosities as well as yeah true crime and paranormal stuff mm-hmm. so you know, tell us if you like that direction. We've got the Gmail account, dietblack at gmail.com for any email suggestions. Our Instagram is always hopping. We're up over 150 people there. We're excited about that. Yeah. Our Facebook group is growing, and we're trying to always add new content to it. Yeah. So. And if we start to get more followers, like I'd like to get up to like, 200 or so followers and then we will officially launch the patreon yeah we've got it out there but it's just kind of 
a little baby Patreon right now. Yeah, it's got like one bonus episode, and we'll probably throw some more on there. So the idea is we want to do that. Um, we've came come up with uh, what we would like to call our followers. Yes, so we were discussing this, and, you know, using the word black makes things a little touchy. You don't want to call anything, like, using that. Right. Because I don't want to be accused of... Um, anything stupid. Anything stupid. So I figured we'd use our entire name and use our initials. So Diet Black, Dibs. We are the, you know, we are the people who have Dibs as followers. So right. Dibs. Dibs. And it's a cool Chicago thing, especially right now in the winter when it's snowing. Um, it's a phenomenon that I discovered when I got up here because it's it's something I've never seen before. Like, even living in New York, it was just not something that's done there. But, so, the way, I guess, it works here is, because there's a lot of street parking, and parking is very valuable in the city, if you get snowed in and you dig your car out of a spot, people will put pretty much anything in that spot, and it's dibs. So that's their spot, you don't take it. And if you do, there's usually, like... People are going to slash your tires. I'm going to be honest. That's usually the... Um, yeah. It's like, that's, you're an that's, asshole. I call, it's called dibs. Don't fucking take my spot. And, and it, if you do, you're going to pay for it. And that's just Chicago street justice right there. Which but, is a majority of Chicago. <laughs> it's all street justice. I think that's why people complain about the crime rate, because we would rather resolve things within our own communities than let anybody else take care of it. But the fun thing about dibs is you never know what you're going to find. So there's the picture that we posted on the Instagram of the Malort box saying, move this and die. I've seen people using statues of, like, the Holy Family, like, yeah. full nativity scenes as dibs. Usually the most popular thing is a metal folded chair. Exactly. And they, and I've seen full dining room sets used as dibs before. Yeah, though. and then I've also, like, I think last year, uh, the city, some small... Um, art museum in the city had um, Chicago artists decorate the metal chairs and then they auctioned them off. So they were like dib based. I think there was like a Cubs one and it's pretty cool. Yeah, so that's our little piece of Chicago that we're sharing with you and, mm -hmm. you know, we think it's cool. So tell us if you like to be called dibs. I mean, it's better than some other things. and Yeah. So. You know? So we're gonna get the the episode started here. You know, I don't not too too much of a fan of like long intros, so Okay. Let's run into it. Um, well, the one thing we have been working on since we've been housebound for three, four weeks is getting together stuff in the house. Obviously. Um, so our main focus right now is getting our tiki bar up and running. We've been doing a lot of painting and decorating and refurbishing, so we decided our first episode back is going to be about tiki. And I'm going to give you kind of a history of the tiki culture and tiki bars in general. And then I am going to hand it over to Liam. And he is going to give you a couple quick tiki tidbits. Yeah, tiki tidbits. So I'm going to talk about, um, when I get into it, some Polynesian culture. So the mysterious Easter Island. <sighs> Just a tiny tidbit on that. I'm also going to talk about a famous hotel um, in Hawaii. And then we're actually going to go into a tiki-themed horror movie, which is super low-budget. But if you like really low-budget horror movies, it's hilarious. We were watching it last night. We didn't quite finish it just because we got super tired. But for being a low-budget film, we loved the aspect and stuff. So we'll talk about that later. But Okay, so... I'm going to jump in here with telling you all that I am not a beach person. I do not do well in direct sunlight. No, she doesn't. When I go out in the sun, I wear a large hat and slather myself in sunscreen. Yeah, we took her to the beach uh, right before we moved out of, like, being directly in the city. And I had to bring, I have a, a, a beach chair. It's like a camping chair that has an umbrella. And I had to make sure that I had that for her. So she was out of the sun. <laughs> it's true. I had my big black hat. And I was covered in clothing, and that is the only way I can survive in direct sunlight. Um, I always wear black. I eschew bright colors. 
I drink vodka and not rum. And I am not a fan of coconuts. Oh, she's not. All that said, you know what I do like? In fact, I'm a big fan of... I love me some tiki. And one of the reasons I love tiki so much is because you can make it what you want. People complain that it may be culturally appropriation or someone isn't true to the spirit of tiki or some such bullshit. Everybody's got a complaint of some form. But I'm here to tell you that modern tiki culture, as we know it and that I love, is an amalgamation of so many influences that it's not trying to be one thing. And it never was from the very start. It is fake South Pacific decor based on the Hawaii and Polynesian islands and Oceania, but it's not taken from any one of them specifically. It's more of items that are collected over years of travel. The food is based on American Chinese cuisine, and it's a bastardization of real Chinese food that we usually refer to as Cantonese food. But nowhere in China are they serving poo-poo platters next to a plate of Kahlua pork. It's just not really Chinese at all. The drinks are actually mostly Caribbean concoctions based on specific rums from specific ports of call, or, as we discovered, a lot of the rum that was left over during the Prohibition era had to be used somehow, and it was cheap because other alcohol was now available. So the best way to cover a harsh alcohol is to mix it with a bunch of fruit juice so you're not actually tasting it. Yeah. And... Um, so a lot of, since Tiki came out right after Prohibition, they were using what they had. Yeah, I think during Prohibition, it's, it's, it was easier for them, it was cheap and easy to get a hold of rum and to make it, mm-hmm. and to barrel it and hide it, than it was to get your, your standard Americanized beverages, which at the time, which kind of is still true now, is very popular, was, has always been whiskey and gin. Mm-hmm. which during Prohibition they really couldn't get, so you ended up with a lot of rum. And then there was an excess of leftover rum once Prohibition ended because people were like, well, I don't want to drink that shit anymore. Yeah. So they had a ton, and it was super cheap and easy to get a hold of, which kind of assisted in the whole tiki drink era. And also, you know, people talk about the music in tiki bars. Like, what is tiki music? Is it the 50s with Elvis and Don Ho and Martin Denny? Is it kind of mid-era Jimmy Buffett and those damn parrot heads? Or is it psychobilly and surfer rock, surfer punk? Like, the beauty of the tiki bar is, it is what you make it. It changes based on the vision of the creator, and everyone is a little bit different. And it's all based on one simple principle. How do I create a principle? Uh, how do I... C- create a paradise in my home that allows me to leave my worries at the door and experience a little vacation without having to pay for a plane ticket. So we have mentioned it many times, but we're working on renovating the bar area in our new house. And my one true demand was that the bar area be turned into a tiki bar for me. The rest of the house has all sorts of different themes, but I wanted a tiki bar. And... It's because I love tiki culture. Yeah, and even though the house, it's only like, I'd say like maybe a quarter of the way done, it's already our favorite room in the house. Absolutely. Like We're every, here now. Every night we hang out in here. This is where we started recording, and it's like now that we keep adding stuff, it's great. You know, we've got the TV and, um, huh? So I find tiki whimsical and delightful, and it brings back really great memories for me. Because when I was a kid, I had family living in Hawaii. So when I got to see them, we would go to the luau's and wear fragrant leis and eat all the pineapples. And my aunt would send us Hawaiian-themed calendars every year as part of our holiday package. Pineapple tidbits. Pineapple tidbits. And one year, the calendar that I got was shaped like Hawaiian shirts. And every month had a different pattern. And oh my god, it was great because... Once the year was over, I actually cut out each of the shirts, and I taped them all over my kitchen wall, and I got some flowery hand towels, and all of a sudden, my kitchen, which at the time was a, like, very dark galley kitchen in a very small apartment, all of a sudden, it was light and bright and tiki, 
and it made it a lot more like fun to be in there. Yeah, I kind of did something similar with my bathroom and one of the places I live with a roommate in Florida. Like, I went to like the Dollar Tree and found these tiki shirt plates, and that kind of took off. And I got like this shower curtain and like this toothbrush holder that was like um, a woody with surfboards on it and kind of made the whole thing tiki. Got like the Glade Hawaiian scent <laughs> air freshener, and it was cool. Yeah. So, I mean, that just proves that, like, you know, Tiki makes people smile. And I wanted to recreate that feeling again here with the bar. And, you know, you just can't be sad in Tiki land. Tiki does make you smile. Yeah. So, if Tiki is all these things, where did it come from? So, the simple answer is, it's from Hollywood, baby. All the way back in 1933... As Prohibition was ending and bar culture was starting to be reborn, a man named Ernest Raymond Beaumont Gant came to California from Texas. He had been working on a yacht traveling to Sydney, Australia, by way of Hawaii. And then he island hopped his way back to the States. But when he got to California, he stopped, he got married, and he opened up a small bar inside a hotel. And it started out as Don's Beachcomber. But later, when it moved to a bigger space, the bar and the man himself changed their name to Don the Beachcombers, or Don Beach, respectively. Don Beach decorated with wooden torches and rattan furniture that he remembered from his travels. He served what was considered Cantonese food, which was popular at the time, and exotic rum cocktails. He's considered the father of the tiki cocktail, and he invented such classics as the Cobra's Fang, Tahitian Rum Punch, Three Dots and a Dash, Navy Grog, and the ever-popular Zombie. The place was a hit from the get-go. The bar was feeding off the popularity of such films as The Love Trader and Birds of Paradise. It was in Hollywood, and Hollywood types were going there. Clark Cable was a regular, and he was good friends with Don Beach. So were Vivian Lee and David Niven. And he worked to keep his Hollywood clientele happy. As a present for each of the VIPs, he had bamboo chopstick holders made for each one of them. That's cool. Exactly. I mean, you come in, you're like, here's my chopstick holder. But the place was so popular and had such a unique vision that copycats and competitors were inevitable. People saw it. It was flourishing. They wanted a piece of that. So a man from Oakland was on vacation in L.A., and he just fell in love with it. His name was Victor Jules Bergeron Jr., and he went back home and changed the restaurant that he had, at the time named Hinky Dinks, to Trader Vic's. And he called himself Trader Vic because he would actually trade people their additions to his decor for drinks. So if you brought him a fishing buoy and he liked it, he would actually add the buoy to his collection on the walls, and then he'd he'd pay you for it in drinks. So... That's how he became Trader Vic. He also had a Seattle um, sister restaurant called The Outrigger. And he basically took what Don the Beachcomber was doing, and he ran with it. Vic took the theme of decorating with the bits and baubles from tropical ports of call. He added new cocktails to his menu. And he was actually one of the two people in the world to claim that he invented the Mai Tai. He also invented the Fog Cutter, and the ever-magnificent Scorpion Bowl. Oh. So. I've never had one. I can't drink stuff like that, but. Ooh, it's pretty to look at. And it's fun to watch other people do it. So we thank you for that, Trader Vic. His empire was, may not still be what it used to be, but it is a global phenomenon. You can actually try a Trader Vic's for yourself, still at one of the restaurants in California, including the original. There's restaurants in London, Tokyo, Dubai, and actually coming soon to Kurdistan. Yeah. Uh, we actually used to have one here in Chicago that was at the Palmer House Hotel, which is one of the fanciest hotels in town. Yes. It, and Trader Vic's was there for almost 50 years, but it closed when the hotel got new ownership, which I'm bummed about because I never actually got to go there because it was a little fancy for my blood at the right. time. And a little fun fact, apparently uh, the Palmer Hotel is the birthplace of the brownie. 
That's true. The Palmer House Hotel brownies are the shit. We actually went to a gala there once for one of his old jobs, and we got all fancy, and we got to eat Palmer House brand brownies. It's, like, light and cakey. And it has cherries in it. That's the secret ingredient. Yeah, I mean, hands down, that's amazing. So, Tiki really was booming, though, after World War II. So, people were coming home from the South Pacific. The war was won. They were happy. They had jobs. The economy was good. Servicemen were having, like, these moments of remembering their leave time, like, on the beaches and especially the ones who served in Hawaii, especially brought back a lot of the Hawaiian culture and their love of a good party. And that helped propel luau parties into fashion. Is that also how we got so many baby boomers? Yes. <laughs> and thanks for that. Um, okay, yeah, that's boomer. where my parents came from. Uh-huh. Mine too. Um, and John Michener, who I don't know if you've ever read a Michener book, but they're like bricks. They're huge. But he wrote a book of short stories called Tales from the South Pacific, which led to a Broadway musical and the movie South Pacific. And they were all hits. So, you know. Yeah, Rodgers and Hammerstein took that shit and ran with it. Exactly. I think it is, like, one of the most prolific, like, well-known Broadway musicals, South Pacific. I've never seen it. Um, I've seen parts of it. I don't think I've seen it all the way through. But, um... The other thing that was going on was because people had money in their pockets um, and commercial airfare was now within the reach of the middle class. So people could actually go on vacations and they were traveling to Hawaii, which had just gained statehood in 1959. And if they couldn't go to Hawaii, they went to Florida and they were soaking up the sun and the beach culture. Mm -hmm. And they wanted that feeling when they got home. So they went to tiki bars. Mm -hmm. Or they created their own in their own homes. Exactly. I mean, I've seen um, some pictures of houses that were built in the 50s. Mm -hmm. And if you're lucky, you maybe if you buy an older house, it might have a tiki bar in the basement. Yeah, we were talking to a friend of ours at a party the other day who... Bought his dad's house and his dad had built a tiki bar. So he got to renovate it and turn it into, like, a brand new tiki bar, which is great. Yeah. Um, And... Speaking of people's homes, Florida actually has its own tiki history. Two brothers who'd grown up loving the Don the Beachcomber in Chicago had vowed to open their own tiki bar when they grew up. And they knew they couldn't steal the main talent from Don, so what they did is they went for the second in charge. They stole the bartender, who was number two, the chef, who was number two, and they proved that these guys were just as hungry as they were, and wanted to prove themselves to be number ones. So, together, Bob and Jack Thornton opened the Mai Kai restaurant in Oakland Park, Florida. Yep. And they took with them Kenny Lee for a chef and Mariano Lucidino as the number two bartender who became their number one guy. And he knew all the recipes, but he could also tweak them and make his own signature cocktails because he knew how to do it. And he actually has gone down as one of the um, fathers of tiki cocktails himself. Yeah, if you so, ever want to go, it's in Fort Lauderdale. It's on Federal Highway, just south of Oakland Park Boulevard. Yep. Um, I lived in Fort Lauderdale, so <laughs> and like in that vicinity, and I drove past it a hundred times. And my friends told me how awesome it was, but it was always super expensive because they usually do like a dinner and show. But kind of now that I, I, I know what it is, I didn't realize how famous it was. It makes more sense, but it's like it's a beautiful place when you pass by it alone. It's amazing. Yeah. It was really kept to a very high standard of fine dining. And it was said that Mariano was such a great bartender that if you had a drink once and you went back years later and asked him for the same drink, it would taste exactly the same because he knew his measurements to a T. That's awesome. Yeah. So that was the Mai Kai, but in addition to that, also booming at the time, Disney World. Yeah. So Walt Disney was one of the first to bring Tiki to the masses with his Magic Kingdom. 
and the Enchanted Tiki Room, and it opened in 1963. The show was originally sponsored by United Airlines, but was later bought by Dole Foods, who introduced the Dole Whip. A very tasty treat. The show itself was a grand affair of four parrots ushering you into a tropical room filled with birds and flowers and tiki gods. They would sing four songs and then usher you right back out. Yeah, as a kid, I got to go a few times, and I can honestly tell you that there were two things in Disney World that as a child, like, I remember. And it was going to, so Disney World's separated into mm-hmm. different lands, and it was Adventureland. Yep. So in Adventureland, there was the Pirates of the Caribbean ride, the yep. original before they introduced the Johnny Depp, mm-hmm. um, Movie Jack Sparrow. Yeah, so there was that. And then on top of that, the one thing that was so magical for me was the Enchanted Tiki Room. And it was so cool because they'd usher you in. And it was kind of a standing room only thing, but it wasn't that long. So it wasn't that bad. Yeah, I researched it. They were only between um, 12 minutes and 17 minutes long, depending on the show you saw. Yeah, and it it was great. I mean, yeah. it was it was so magical to see all these birds. And for me, it was pretty much the only interaction with birds that I had were animatronic ones because I am deathly afraid of birds and <laughs> I want to thank my cousin for that for making a five-year-old watch Alfred Hitchcock's birds it causes trauma people <laughs> <laughs> well speaking of the audio animatronics this show was actually the first to ever feature those animatronics and it would go on to be the animatronics that filled out other rides in Adventureland, such as It's a Small World or Pirates of the Caribbean. It had never been done before anywhere. Yeah. And because all of that animatronics was run by these huge computers back then, it was actually one of the first fully air-conditioned attractions at the park. Right. So it's been updated several times since the original and duplicated at several of the other Disney parks. Um, but the original is still key, and it was actually what introduced so many generations to Tiki. Yeah, and uh, fun fact, because my my family actually kept um, their original tickets Mm. as souvenirs, and the way that I believe that the tickets worked is you had, like, a book, and each book had a ticket to each area. So it was divided up, and you had to present a ticket to go into Adventureland. And actually, the Tiki Room, I was just researching this while I was researching, found out that because that particular exhibit itself was owned by an outside sponsor, a.k.a. United Airlines before Dole, it was actually a separate ticket for that, and you had to pay a fee for it. Now, granted, at the time, it was $0.79 to get in when it started. But yes, it was one of the few rides you had to pay extra for. Or attractions that you had to pay extra for. But if you couldn't get to Disney, most major cities at this time had an outlet of either Beachcombers or Trader Vic's or a Con Tiki Lounge or some mom-and-pop tiki bar that was springing up to feed the craze. However, with any craze, what goes up is considered passe by the next generation. Mm -hmm. And... As the post-war optimism of the 50s and early 60s led to the skepticism of the Vietnam War era, the Pacific, you know, was becoming a touchy subject. And the triumphant servicemen of World War II were giving way to the disenchanted nom vets. So tiki bars were past their prime and seen as the hippie kids, they thought that that was their parents' way of having fun. And they were not into it. So the kids of the 70s just didn't go. Yeah, they and were they all... interested in dropping acid in each other. Well, yeah, there's that. <laughs> <laughs> but basically, they were just like, that's for squares, man. I don't want to have anything to do with it. And tiki bars started closing and falling into disrepair. Um, but because during the fifties and sixties, the Tiki bar was the playground of the middle class. And as I said, considered to be squares, like the button down crowd, 
that changed altogether when things started get a little strange in the 90s. So two different groups started to find the subversive joy in Tiki. Crawling out of the wreckage and making it beautiful once again were the punks and the hipsters. So you have bands like the Cramps, who were heavily influenced by Elvis and Rockabilly, and they were picking up the vibe. And their fans were collecting vintage cars and wearing vintage bouffant and beehive hairdos and falling in love all over again with Tiki. And the punks knew it was cool from the beginning. The Ramones were covering Surfing Bird from the Trashmen up front and very early. Yeah. But what are other things that punks like? Tattoos. Who was the pioneer of tattooing? Sailor Jerry, who also made rum. So it all goes hand in hand in hand. It's a direct line through there. Yeah, we got a big handle of Sailor Jerry rum. It's really good, by we the way. We should be drinking that right now, but, yeah, but that's we're not, okay. No. We're not there yet. But, um, you know, it was all about nostalgia and recognizing what was cool about the past and handpicking the parts that worked for them. But the hipsters' approach to Tiki was much more through the mid-century modern furniture and the resurgence of crack. Crack. <laughs> crack. Um, crack. Crack cocktails. Good for kids. <laughs> Craft cocktails. There's my voice giving out the right moment. Um, Could you say that your voice cracked? Oh, you're fired. <laughs> so Dead joke for the win. Oh, when I make them, it's I'm fired. Go home. When you make them, it's for the win. Okay. I don't know. Don't care. It's funny. Um, big hair, don't care. Big hair, don't care. Wearing them bouffant hairdos. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the hipsters were all about that mid-century modern resurgence of craft cocktails. And they saw the cyclical appeal of the 50s and 60s through shows like Mad Men. And they were getting back into the look, and the artisanal foods and drink movement was also ramping up. So since tiki cocktails rely on very specific recipes and high-quality ingredients and fruit juices and herbs and syrups that they were all making in-house... A diabetic heartburn coma waiting to happen. Well, there's that, too. But, you know, if you (laughs) stick an umbrella and a sword in it, it makes it a lot more fun. Yeah. Um, So, but this is how it fits perfectly into hipster aesthetics and new tiki bars are now popping up again all over the country here in chicago the two front runners for the scene are a rather small intimate venue in logan square called lost lake which i actually go past every day on the way home from work and who is their own by their own description a stylish tropical oasis meets flotsam strewn island dot Lost Lake evokes both the glamorous tropical escapism of the 1930s Hollywood and the rugged nautical island aesthetic of the world's first tiki bar, the original Don Beachcombers Cafe. Under a roof of Luahala, between walls of iconic banana print wallpaper, Lost Lake's cocktail program plays homage to the 80-plus years of exotic cocktail history with a menu of original tropical recipes and selections from the classic tiki canon decked out in tropical attire and well-versed in rum or rum with an h lost lake's talented team of friendly and knowledgeable beverage professionals is ready to take you on a mini vacation by way of a wildly garnished tiki cocktail so yeah that's all about the hipsters and then downtown we have three dots and a dash which is actually named after the drink that don the beach comer act invented. But this is more of a corporate version of the new Tiki. Their description is, Welcome to Three Dots and a Dash, a Chicago's premier tropical tiki bar and craft cocktail destination, hidden below the bustling streets of River North. The secret hideaway named one of the world's 50 best bars by Drink International is led by the cocktail expert Ken Beery. Our team is researched tirelessly to source and create the best possible tiki cocktails using the freshest exotic fruits and spices, the finest rums and distilled spirits, 
and juices and elixirs that are cold-pressed and concocted in-house every day. Surrender all your cares and let three dots and a dash whisk you away on a rum-soaked tropical excursion. Apparently the best that you can get in the Midwest. Yeah. So, I've heard both of these are pretty fun times. However, out here in our little nook of the suburbs, we have our own tiki bar. Which is awesome. The Tiki Terrace has been around for years. Even when I didn't live out here, I actually made my parents give me a family birthday party out here a couple times. It's not pretentious at all. It's fun and silly. The decor is exactly what you would expect from a tiki restaurant. With palm fronds and bamboo and big, like... Easter Island looking carvings and it's a lot of fun and they have shows several times a week with their dinners and their shows vary because they showcase everything from like Maori warrior haka to Elvis blue Hawaiian Christmas shows which we went to it was a lot of fun yeah we actually went to um, not the Hawaiian Christmas show well we did go to that and that was really fun but we went to one once. It was just a show for, and I actually got pulled on stage to yeah. do the Maori warrior thing. Mm-hmm. It was fun. Like, I have video of it. I might put it up on the website if we're. Yeah, as we were leaving, there was a table of little old ladies that were like apparently ogling me. Yes, it was <laughs> I adorable. F- I felt slightly uncomfortable. <laughs> but, you know, they take the, the other thing that's cool about Tiki Terrace is they take the time to discuss the history and cultures. Behind the dances that they feature. Yeah, it's really fucking cool. They used to be a part of a group called the Barefoot Hawaiians, and they still uh, practice and share their brand of Hawaiian culture with the Midwest. But now the Barefoot Hawaiians actually have their own space, which is happens to be across the street yeah, from Tiki Yeah, I'm like, it's across the street. And but it's... whichever of the two that you go to see... You will have a good time, mm-hmm. and you're going to come back having learned something. Yeah, and it's it's fun, and the food is great. Exactly. But, you know, in the end, when our tiki bar is done here in the house, it may not feature barefoot Hawaiian men twirling fire batons, but we're going to have drinks, and we have cats. Yeah. And we'll have our own tropical hideaway without the things that I can't stand about the tropics. No sun, no sand, and no other people. All right, so um, I've got some tidbits for you. So I've kind tidbits, of tidbits. Are they pineapple tidbits? They could be. <laughs> so I did a little bit of research into. I try to go more into the Polynesian history and try to find some weird, quirky things. So I'm gonna talk a little bit about Easter Island, which at the Tiki Terrace, they've got the statues. So basically, Easter Island, which is also known as Rapa Nui, was discovered uh, by Polynesian explorers thousands of, uh, sorry, no, hundreds of years ago, I'm sorry. And they settled there. So Polynesia is basically Australia, I want to say. That's kind of more Oceania, but it's just Polynesia is kind of like Fiji and Easter Island. And between Asia and Australia, kind of that area. Yeah, so the theory is, is they set out on these small rafts and sailed into the ocean and discovered Easter Island. There's actually a gentleman who, I forgot when, but it was before the tiki culture kind of... No, actually, it was like right as it was getting started. Okay. Because he didn't actually go until... So, Beachcombers and Trader Vic's were already open, but it was before, like, the big boom in the 50s and 60s, and his name was Thor Heimdale, and he actually wanted to recreate the boats, and that's actually where Contiki came from. He called it that, and he set out, there's a big documentary on how he got this boat made and showed that you could island hop from one to the other in these big... Like, basically woven rafts. Yeah, that kind of rely on the ocean and the wind Mm -hmm. to carry them. So, like, basically the original sailboats, almost. Mm -hmm. Um, So he did that. And, of course, there are... He wrote a book about it, Contiki. Yep. And then there was a movie um, based on it. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think recently, I think 2016, maybe, I could be wrong, they did another, like, high-budget version of it, and they went overboard with a bunch of stupid shit. (laughs) 
but there was that. Um, so basically, he tried to recreate it. But anyways, after the Polynesians arrived, they carved close to a thousand massive stone figures called Moai um, that it have said to be instilled with the spirits of their ancestors. Now, there are a number of quarries on Easter Island, so this is where they would carve them. And even now, uh, you can go to the island and go to the quarries and see partially carved statues that they just didn't finish. That's cool. So they would carve it right out of the, the mountain or mm-hmm. the moor and, and just move them. So now these moai were then moved possibly as far as 12 miles and then placed on sacred platforms called ahu. Now, the mystery of the carvings is that no one knows how they did it. So, uh, and according to island lore, the Moai simply walked into place. And, but the biggest mystery is, one, how could people with no metal tools carve these massive statues, right? And then how could prehistoric farmers, which is basically what they were when they settled there, without having access to the wheel because it hadn't been part of their culture, um, move these statues that were up to 30 feet tall and weighed close to 82 tons. Um, and then the tr- So basically the transportation and the carving of these have been one of the biggest mysteries for centuries on the island. There were a couple of different people that took different theories. Mm-hmm. So there was one guy, I think, in the 80s, he had a smaller version of the statues moved in, and they figured that they may have moved them on bamboo rods, uh, the way that the boats are moved up onto the shore. So kind of like you set them on the rod, you move it, you move another rod, mm-hmm. and you kind of move it that way, that way they're moved flat on their back. But there was another person who was like, no, these... if." If you take the lore into consideration that they walked, they were actually moved in an upright position. And there's a lot of proof to back that on the island itself. So the what they did is if you notice along all the paths, if it's going downhill, it's sloped at, I believe, uh, six degrees. Okay. And then going uphill, it's three degrees. And on a lot of the paths, you'll find that there's statues like littering them so if it was going downhill the statues are found face down and Mm -hmm. if it's going uphill they're found face back so that kind of reaffirms that they were moved upright and they just fell and they're like well fuck it this one's done and just (laughs) went for another one so it's actually really really cool and we've got a very it sounds like Gigi Gigi Okay. Um, we'll see. <laughs> another thing that I researched was the cocoa palms in Hawaii. Um, so the way we're going to do this is like, picture it. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> okay. Uh, let's go back in time to the 1950s on the island of Kauai. Kauai in Hawaii. As you walk off the plane... You are greeted with the smell of the ocean, and a smiling person places a lei around your neck. After you grab your bags, you are whisked into a cab on your way to your destination, which is only a short drive through a tree-lined Highway 51 as you're dropped off at the front doors. Now, I wrote this as if it were modern, modern, more modern day, but I believe that back at this time in the 50s, you actually had to fly into one of the main airports and then take a helicopter to the island. Mm-hmm. So this might not necessarily be how it works, but towards the end, yes. <laughs> so as you approach the doors to the resort, the doors swing open and a man blows a conch shell announcing your arrival and you're immediately transported into another time and place where carved wood and bamboo surrounds you, the smells and sights of a tropical paradise. Welcome to the Cocoa Palms Resort. Oh, I thought you were going to say Fantasy Island there for a Fantasy second. Fantasy Island! <laughs> boss, the plane! The plane, boss! So now in its heyday, 
on the sprawling 50-acre property, which was covered with palm trees and had a beautiful lagoon and a river ran through it, which was the definition of Polynesian paradise. Now, films such as Pagan Love, uh, starring Esther Williams and Howard Keel, Miss Sadie Thompson, starring Rita Hayworth, and Voodoo Island, starring Boris Karloff, were all filmed at this location. Now, although South Pacific, which Tam talked about earlier, wasn't filmed there, the actors stayed there, which that alone, with all the press coverage, brought the hotel even more notoriety and attention. Now, the resort itself was one of the oldest hotels on the island of Kauai, and was originally called the Coco Palms Lodge until 1953, when a woman named Grace Boucher arrived to take over the lodge. The company that asked her to come in was owned by Lyle Gooselander. So with his help, she found a chef for the hotel and then began to clean up the lodge. Now she then used the lodge's lagoon and surrounding coconut grove as a focal point to market the hotel. So instead of using the beach, was back to the hotel. Mm -hmm. uh, she... Uh, called it the Coco Palms. Now, with her love of Hawaiian culture, um, she created an atmosphere where it is said to have been one of the most authentic Hawaiian hotels in Hawaii. Um, complete with furnishings and ceremonies held on the grounds to honor the Hawaiian tradition. Now, they say that a lot of her inspiration for the hotel came from the land's history, which was situated near traditional native Hawaiian place of worship, a royal birthing site, and the 19, in the 19th century was home to Deborah Kapule, which was Kauai's last queen before the kingdom of Hawaii was formed. She was apparently the favorite wife of the king. Okay. Now, Grace included many pieces of this history in many of the programs that she introduced at the hotel, such as a torchlighting ceremony, a pageant celebrating uh, Capoele's birthday, a Hawaiian flag-raising ra ceremony, and she also had the hotel lobby rebuilt to mimic a Hawaiian thatched halau. Is that how you say it? Yeah, I think that's right. Which was a longhouse with a Hawaiian oracle tower standing tall beside it. She also initiated a three-planting tradition, which is meant to honor the importance of sustainability in native Hawaiian culture. Now, by the time Grace retired in 1981, the hotel had grown to a 416-room sprawling hotel and grounds that was known around the world. So by 1985, many of the longtime staffer, staff members became... They just started to retire, and the hotel began to lose its luster. And then... On September 11th, 1992, Hurricane Iniki hit Kauai as a devastating Category 4 hurricane with winds around 145 miles per hour. Oh. Now, although the resort has survived many storms and floods before, this one closed the doors of the Cocoa Palms for good. Yeah. Now, since then, the Cocoa Palms has sat abandoned and has been slowly reclaimed by the land. And on top of that, it's changed hands many times. As far as ownership goes, it's caught on fire twice and was raided multiple times by looters. Now, th thieves took anything of value that they could, including, I believe, a set of six doors carved out of... Um, teak? Not teak. It was... Um, Kauai. I, I didn't write it down, so I apologize, but it was... Uh, native wood to the island. Um, okay. The guest room sinks were all uh, seashells. They stole those. They stole copper. They stole literally anything that wasn't nailed down and could bring them some sort of money, which is heartbreaking. Now, it still sits there. As far as all my research has turned up today, still uh, deteriorating as it has for decades. Sounds um, like a fascinating place to go wandering. Yeah, it looks great. Like I've, <laughs> I've so now there's been talks of tearing down the old buildings and rebuilding the hotel, um, but those seem to have fallen through 
there was some stuff at the beginning of last year saying that uh, I believe it was Hilton mm -hmm. had bought the land and they were going to rebuild it. There were some issues with locals who don't want that done. And if I'm not mistaken, a few years ago, there was even a huge issue with natives on the land camping out and squatting on the land because it belonged to the native culture and they didn't want anything else done there. That is one thing that's actually a big deal in Hawaii is the natives trying to protect their land from outside influence and the tourist trade because as beautiful as the islands are and as lucrative as it is to have hotels there, it is also encroaching on native lands and taking away from what they consider is, you know, land that they should be working and honoring. Yeah. And, um, you know, it can get downright belligerent at times. I've yeah. seen, you know, documentaries of it where people are talking about protesting, like, the new resorts and stuff as they come in. So I can imagine that a place as beautiful that is that with the history that it has that the native population would not be necessarily jazzed to have somebody come in and bulldoze it yeah so. and i believe that, that you know they have a point though like absolutely so the site itself has some sordid history and still does now even as an abandoned spot like there's actually a group of people that went out and we're the first people to do an official, like, ghost hunt on the property. Mm -hmm. So it's got that supernatural aspect to it. Now, as far as it changing hands and not getting anybody new to actually come in and repurpose the property, you know, maybe it's the bad luck of the property, and, and maybe it's because Grace isn't there anymore to honor the land. Because that's one thing that she did. So it went from being a small hotel to this sprawling metropolis-style yeah. hotel because she honored it and gave it the justice it deserved. Um, unfortunately, she passed away after the hotel was abandoned. She passed away in 1999. Now, the hotel is also said to have been built on a sacred burial ground and a Hawaiian temple is said to have once rested there, where they said that there were many human sacrifices that took place. And that's always, like, the kind of cheesy stuff, too, that, like, get brought up anytime there's, like, a, um... Like, especially back in the 60s and 70s, whenever a TV show did their special Hawaiian vacations, they always had something, like... Somebody who brought home a rock from the island and or had like bad... the pretty bunch with exactly. the tiki island necklace. Yeah. You know, and they'd have to go return the rock to the place that it came from to get the curse from them. And it's actually something that is still happening to this day. Like, if you research it, the um, National Park Service gets people mailing back rocks to them all the time saying we're really sorry we took this can you tell the land that we don't have it anymore and can you please release the curse on us yeah so i mean it's cheesy as hell to say but i mean there's bad mojo if you mess with the land in hawaii yeah they also say that there was like some bloody battles that occurred on the land uh, the land because it's so sacred it's actually said to be protected by a group called the Ghostly Night Marchers. Um, so we're said to be seen when they're escorting um, recently deceased family members to the underworld, which is really interesting. Now, legends that surround the Night Marchers say that they have the power to kill anyone that makes eye contact with them. So, as far as the ghost stories go, uh, they've been around since the opening of the hotel, actually. Okay. Um, and there's reports of interactions with extremely powerful ghosts, such as the Night Marchers, um, who announce their presence with drums and torches as they march the grounds uh, to an entry known as... Uh... So, they're marching the grounds, and 
it said that you can first you hear the drums okay and then you can see the torches moving Ooh. through the wilderness creepy and if you watch the ghost episode that i watched um forgive me i can't remember the name of the show but they actually have video where it looks like you can see torches moving in the background it's really crazy that's pretty cool and like Freaky. creepy but there's apparently another victim uh, another entity that they call the choking ghost that would attack guests by immobilizing and even strangling their victims in bed mm. and you know how i feel about that mm -hmm. is it's just sleep paralysis but there's i mean that's a factor it's very possible now even though it's been it had been abandoned since 1992 locals in the area still report seeing apparitions to this day on the land which would make sense like the night marchers yeah. i think are the most predominant that they would see mm -hmm. no the hotel was abandoned after the hurricane and fire destroyed most of it which according so according to the suspicious locals they're like well that's just the dead taking back their land they're like this hotel's never gonna happen so fuck off yeah but I thought it was really interesting to, like, read about it. Now, I know that there are some rumors that some people think that Blue Hawaii was actually filmed at this hotel. That's not the case. Okay. Um, it was filmed somewhere else. I think the closest vicinity that it got filmed at is at the end where um, Elvis's character is on, like, a canoe going to a wedding chapel that was supposed to be at um, the Cocoa Palms. That's the closest thing okay. that it actually came to the resort itself. Gotcha. Um, so there's that, which I think is really cool. I love talking about haunted places, yeah. places that have really cool, deep history. And that is definitely a place that has like, I've never been to Hawaii, but I feel like if I did go, that's a place I'd want to go. For sure. I've never actually been to Kauai. When I had family living there, they were all on Oahu. So, um, I stayed on that island. I've not been to the any of the others, but it's something that, you know, if we do go someday, we can go exploring. Yeah, that would be fun. And I'm like, you can actually fly onto that particular island now. They have a major airport there, which in the 50s they did not. Yeah. But they do now, and it's super close to the airport. It's like, I think, five miles from the airport. It's not far at all. I don't think it's a very big island, to be honest. Mm -mm. But. But, so in my research, I stumbled upon... <laughs> A horror movie about Tiki. It's just called Tiki. And we're talking super low budget. So if you like D-grade horror movies... Oh my god, I had no is... idea what I was in for until he turned it on. And it is literally like a bunch of people from like a local acting class like filming each other doing this. Yeah. So it was filmed in 2006 in Spokane, Washington. <sighs> You know, the tiki capital of Spokane. Oh, no. So, basically, the storyline is when Amy moves from her beloved Hawaiian islands to study drama on the mainland, she has little cause to rejoice as a gang of vicious co-eds plot to make her life a living hell. With the aid of their boyfriends, the girls set Amy up as the target of a horrendous prank that results in the young girl falling victim to a brain seizure from which she may never recover. Seeking answers, her aunt, uh, Melea, arrives with a special tiki doll. She doesn't actually arrive with a tiki doll, by the way, watching the movie. She sent, pack, secretly packs the tiki doll into Amy's luggage, yes. and Amy discovers it as she's unpacking. But apparently the tiki doll is specially designed to kill. Now, through magic, she coaxes Amy's subconscious spirit to enter the idol's body and bring it to a hideous life. Now the idol tracks down the students one by one to exact its grisly revenge in a resentless assault of tiki terror. It's so cheesy. It, it is, and it, it kind of reminds me... I forgot what like there's a movie that's got like a couple of different ones and they've got like a fetish that like tracks down people and kills but it's kind of on along those lines it kind of is like take child's play and chucky is a tiki doll instead of a my buddy doll and that's kind of what you're getting with yeah. this 
I'll be honest, we watched it last night. We did not finish it. We got pretty much close to the end. We just were too fucking tired. But I like the way that it's built. So it starts off being told by one of the victims. But a majority of it, you're almost through the eyes of the Tiki doll. Yes. So you actually don't see the doll very much, which I think is actually really good because when you do, it's a pretty, like, weird, like, styrofoam toy. But you actually instead watch it and see the victims, like, seeing it skittering in the shadows. and Yeah, they're trying like, everything they can. Like, they go after it with, like, an axe and a baseball bat, and they can't catch the little thing. But it's really fucking cool. It's actually pretty hilarious. Yeah, I mean, for a D-grade movie, I actually enjoyed what I did see. I was just exhausted and was falling asleep on the couch. No, like, judgment on the movie. It would have been anything. But it was pretty fun. And, you know, if you're into that sort of thing, totally go ahead and give yourself some entertainment and watch the damn thing. It's on Amazon Prime. Because so, I think it went straight to video. So I'm the only not surprised. Can, yeah, the only way you can really see it is either if you get a hold of a copy of the video, which most, like, I don't know, 2006, it wasn't on VHS, maybe a DVD, yeah. I don't know, but either way, it's fucking hilarious. Now, apparently there's some drama surrounding one of the actors that was in the film. I believe it might have been one of his first films. Okay. And then... I believe he was also in, um, didn't you say Twin Peaks? Yes. Okay. He was in the newer version of Twin Peaks. So there was some stuff surrounding him. He was, uh, Jeremy Lindhold. So I basically copy and pasted the article about it. So forgive me. I'm going to read that. It might give some extra tidbits. It doesn't need to, but a local actor, and this is from uh, Spokane news. Um, is accused of beating his girlfriend repeatedly with a baseball bat, pleaded guilty to second-degree assault Thursday morning in Spokane Superior Court on Thursday. Now, dressed in a yellow jumpsuit, his graying hair pulled back into a ponytail, Jeremy Lindholt faced Judge Annette Please and apologized to the court for the crime. He said, I deeply regret the incident, he said softly. I truly desire to get into rehabilitation, to therapy that I so obviously need. Now, he told the officers after the assault that he was upset because his girlfriend did not go to the store and get him some Kool-Aid. Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. Before he went to work at the boutique. She went to the work at the boutique, according to court records. Um, He told police that his original plan was not to hurt his girlfriend, but to force police to shoot him in front of her. What a fucking psycho. No, she was treated at the hospital for non-life-threatening injuries. So, some other things that I found actually on info about the film, which is why I found out about this, is he beat her with a baseball bat in front of her co-workers. Oh my god. Now, in court, as witnesses were uh, his family and his girlfriend, who asked the judge to drop a non-contract order that forbade the two from speaking... She told the courtroom that she still liked to see him and get him mental help, but she said she was not in danger. Um, so he played Connor in the film. Who I think is actually the first to die. Yes, he is. He is. So. It's just, I remember watching and I was like, oh, okay. So the heavy set bitchy girl has to date the like weird looking fat guy. I'm like, that's kind of bullshit, but. I mean, they do play up stereotypes to the absolute worst mm-hmm. in that movie, so... Yeah, so the story is actually told from the place of this really neurotic girl who, from the beginning of the movie, is just constantly brushing her hair. So, we didn't finish watching it, but I'm waiting for the big reveal, so I'm looking forward to that. But if you want, like, a cheap, shitty thrill that is... If you take it out of, out of any trying to watch, like, a major movie context it's actually really good so um to wrap it up if you have some time check out the movie if you've got amazon that'd be fun you might be able to find it on youtube i don't know and you know if you're not into the movie but you really want to have a nice little 
Escape from reality? Find your local tiki bar. If you're local and you know us, call us up and maybe we'll let you hang out in ours. But otherwise, you know, diet black. Yeah. Uh, we're, I think we're planning on doing our house party, um, our final, finally our housewarming party probably this summer. And we're going to take the Trader Vic's aspect and ask people that all we really want is something to put on our wall for our tiki bar. Bring us something for the tiki bar, we'll give you a drink. Mm -hmm. And some food. Yeah. I'll make some ribs and we'll grill some chicken and it'll be fun. We'll have all the pineapples. Yes. <laughs> but thank you for coming back. Thank you for hanging out with us again. Look for us next week. We're going to do our best to get right back on schedule here. Mm -hmm. And hopefully everybody's health is going to hold up. And, yep. you know, I'm happy to be back in the saddle. So thanks for listening. Check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Gmail. Give us any ideas you've got or thoughts or comments. Hey, if you're listening on iTunes, rate us, give us a review. Send us a copy of the review to our gmail account and we'll send you something special um yeah i've drawn up some stuff so i'm hoping that with the patreon i'll be able to get on um etsy or something and have some stickers made mm -hmm. to some of the artwork that i've done so we're hoping that it's going to be a patreon perk yeah so you know we look forward to hearing from you and you'll be hearing from us very soon yep keep us uh Keep us in your minds. And in your hearts. Yes, and remember, Diet Black, so episode one, season two. Woo! We're in the books. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 <laughs>